The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit kicking sand on that supermodel and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 260 with guests Anand Rahman and David Wright, recorded live Thursday, July 26, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bring world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who, when his daughter asks who lives in a sandcastle, replies, A sandwich, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl, here with Richard. Hi, Richard. Hey, man. How you doing? Hey, I'm pretty good. And so glad to be with you today on this very, very lovely day. I'm sure it is. Let's just get right into it, Richard, with uh, Better Know a Framework. Oh, boy. Because I got a little bit of editorializing to do this time. Ooh, what, what are we talking about then? Well, this class today is one you might know. It's the uh, system.collections.generic.dictionary class. Uh-oh. Wow. You went right into it, didn't you? Yeah. So the generic uh, collections include uh, include list and dictionary. And the dictionary, you know, a dictionary is different from a collection because a dictionary you can just put in a key and get the value out. The session object is probably the most popular dictionary ever in the .NET framework. Um, well, what's great about it is you can you can create a dictionary where you pass in the data types, not just for the object but for the key. And so then you can use this strongly typed dictionary, just boom, just like that. That's the beauty of generics. Right. A uh, problem with a dictionary, however, is that it's not XML serializable. Right, right. Now, fortunately, Paul Welter, who's a .NET developer, posted uh, some code for an XML serializable generic dictionary at his blog, which you can read at shrinkster.com slash r6i. And he basically says, here you go, here's the code, it's just a few lines of code, it's written in C-sharp, and uh, it implements the uh, iXML serializable interface, and there you go. And nobody really knows why, well, I don't know if nobody knows, but I certainly don't know why they didn't implement... Uh, this in the in the collection to begin with, in the dictionary to begin with. And the big consequence here is if you are using uh, ASP.NET, for example, and you're using out-of-process session and you use a dictionary object into your session uh, class, then you're going to have problems. That's right. You know all about this, Mr. Strange Loop. Yes, uh, Strange Loop. We've certainly dealt with this particular issue that you're going to get an error when you try, when the serializer runs to try and ship your session out of your web server because the dictionary object can't be serialized. Yeah, that's right. 
So there you go. It's a it's a great class. The generic dictionary, however, uh, needs a little modification in order to be serializable. And thanks again to Paul Welter for for publishing that and figuring it out. And uh, there's some great comments there. Other people have done the same thing uh, in different implementations. Awesome. So it's just a great way that the community comes together to solve a problem. Awesome. All right, Richard, what's on the email I list? I got a simple for email for you, and it. So okay. that puts a question out there. It's a, uh, from David Osborne. And he says, Hey guys, I just wanted to let you know that the Scott Stanfield show was great. Yeah, that was fun. I am a .NET developer and have been listening to the big three for some time now. The big three being .NET Rocks, Hansel Minutes, and Run As Radio. My only complaint is that I need more content to listen to. Yes, sir. I've tried a few other podcasts, but either the content or yeah. the sound quality sucks, and I removed them from my subscriptions. After listening to the Scott Stanfield show, I started thinking that you need to get this guy his own podcast. You know, I, I had the very same thought. Did you really? Yeah, he really does. I could talk to him all day. Well, he cannot identify airplanes worth beans. <laughs> He's such a creative guy. He's though. very creative. I really like the fact that, you know, it ended up really being a show about the aesthetics of software that appealed to me profoundly because we, it's, I don't think it's an area that's addressed enough and really could be a topic all by itself. Hey, did you know, speaking of being creative, we, uh, Pwop Productions got a little mention in this latest issue of Create Magazine. And I wish I could give you a place to, to get it online, but, uh, createmagazine.com requires a, a subscription for you to see their catalog right. online. But I, I did get a sample of this magazine and I really like it. I don't know if you've seen it, Richard. I Create. have. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just about being creative and and with technology, um, photographs, web content, music, uh, film, uh, you know, Flash and Silverlight, and you know there was a whole thing in there in this issue about expression, about web expression, web or expression web, I guess it's called. So, uh, really, really interesting magazine, createmagazine.com. Check it out. And, um, hey, get a subscription. They didn't really say anything about us that you didn't already know. However, what was cool about it is they published a picture of the, a screen capture of the .NET Rocks page, and Rob Howard's face was right there on it. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> he got a kick out of that. And, David, thanks very much for your email. I think we should bother Scott Stanfield some more. I know he's always busy to uh, to put together his own show. We I should. Think, I wonder if he I would. I think we should talk every week about the aesthetics of software. I, I wonder if he would do a show. Let's let's find out. It's worth an if idea. You think, uh, if you think he should, just... Send him an email and bug him about it. Yeah, or send us an email, uh, .NET rocks at franklins.net. All right. And, uh, hey, you know, Greg Brill at Infusion in New York City is still looking for great people. He's, he's really hired a lot of you, uh, from the .NET rocks listener pool. And I know you're sitting around saying, yeah, I'm sick of hearing about this thing in New York. I'm stuck here in my job. Well, you know what? Just go read the blog post at shrinks.com slash KH6. It might change your mind. And what do you got to lose? They'll fly you to New York. You get an interview. You at least have a fun day in New York, right? Definitely. So um, you can live in an apartment in Manhattan rent-free for a year if you qualify. Also, if you're in the Boston area, they're hiring in Boston. And, uh, you know, we're not a recruiter or anything. They're just good friends of ours, and we're trying to help them out, get them some, uh, get them some of our listeners as employees. And uh, good luck with that. All right, Richard, let's introduce our guests, Anand Raman and David Wright. Anand is a group manager with the Microsoft Developer Division Content and International Team. He runs the development teams that build the tools for shipping documentation for Visual Studio, the .NET Framework, and the Windows SDK. His team is also responsible for shipping community wiki and translation wiki projects. Anand has graduate degrees in computational fluid mechanics and worked several years as a researcher before joining Microsoft, and he's an avid tennis player. Awesome. Uh, David Wright is a lead developer from Microsoft's Developer Division Content and International Team, which manages the creation, localization, and quality control of over a million pages of documentation for developers on Visual Studio and the .NET Framework. David completed a PhD in physics and worked for several years as a research physicist before his interest in programming led him to a job at Microsoft, where he has worked for the last six years. He enjoys hiking, sailing, traveling, and any problem amenable to a good, clean mathematical analysis. 
Anand and David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Wow, you guys are... You are, guys sound like you should be working for Microsoft Research. Serious. Oh, well, we get to do a lot of research kind of stuff in our jobs we have now and have direct content contact with uh, real people out in the world. So we sort of get the best of both worlds here. I got to tell you, uh, as a .NET developer, love the documentation. Well, it should be getting better with uh, Orcus. So I hope uh, you love it even more when we ship the next version. Yeah, I love everything about it. And, you know, admittedly, uh, developer documentation, SDK documentation has been around in various forms, some good, some not for a long time. So you've had a lot of practice at it as a company. But, uh, but you know, the, the, as soon as .NET shipped in Visual Studio, I mean, the whole, the whole system just really flows and it's easier to find what you're looking for. Yeah, .NET made it a lot easier for us, too, because the reflection capabilities allowed us to auto-generate a lot more content and, you know, make sure that it was presented consistently and lots of necessary information was there without having people, subject to their errors, write it themselves. Are you the guys that actually go to the developers and say, oh, we need a sample for this, we need a sample for that? Or is that just sort of put, uh, is that just sort of, you know, part of the sh- part of the software now. Part of you know, shipped as a feature. Well, sample writing itself certainly isn't automated. Um, someone has to do that. Um, and actually, there are lots of different people who write samples. So some samples are written by the developers who actually coded that technology themselves. And then we also hire authors to write the documentation. Um, and those authors also sometimes write samples. So the samples you see come from a lot of different sources. So I guess what I'm saying is the are the samples part of the spec of the software itself, of the SDK itself, or is it tacked on after the fact? You know, is it part of the project, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, they're both kinds. So those uh, the, the stuff that you see sort of integrated into our reference documentation where it says, Here's how to use console.writeline and shows a little snippet of code. Right. Those things are, um, you know, we, we set a goal that says such and such a percent of our APIs will have those, and we have a lot of quality control around them. We compile, test them, and reformat the comments and do stuff like that. So those are sort of part of the process. But then the things that are zipped up in zip files that are just kind of complete projects that you can open up and see how they were architected that are supposed to illustrate the larger way that everything holds together. Those are basically one-off projects that a, a developer or an author has decided to do and we've included. I see. Now, you sent us some links at the beginning of the show while we were getting set up. Um, one of them was msdnwiki.microsoft.com, and I went there, and it just points to the MSDN library now. So where's the wiki gone? Now, that's the MSDN shipping community wiki you're talking about? Yeah, if you look at the top of the library, you can see the uh, icons. Uh, there's a small icon which uh, uh, actually you have to drill down to several uh, levels down. So you have to go to uh, you go to the library, if you go to the uh, development tools and languages, and you can go through two, three levels down to Visual Studio. Right. You can see a community content icon on the page. I see. So once you're down into an actual page with content in it, mm-hmm. then you suddenly have this opportunity to to contribute to it. That's right. You can. Uh, we are not allowing uh, our customers to touch the Microsoft developed content, but we are allowing uh, our customers to pro- annotate or provide at the bottom of the content. Uh, so the way we are going with this is, you know, we are hoping that uh, customers come and contribute. Uh, uh, content code samples or snippets to this existing content. And also we recently introduced the tagging feature uh, so they can tag these content and find them in a much easier way. Now the translation wiki, which is at shrinkster.com slash R5U, what is that? Uh, so translation wiki is completely different uh, than um, the community wiki project. Uh, with Translation Wiki, what we are doing is we are trying to reach uh, the markets uh, which we do not localize. So, for example, currently we localize uh, Visual Studio content in uh, English plus eight languages. Uh, but we do have developers in segments such as uh, Brazilian, Portuguese, Russian, uh, who want to get the content in their languages. 
it's not easy for us to provide content because uh, we ship about uh, 25 million words with Visual Studio help. Right. And it's a significant cost for us to reach uh, different markets. And uh, so the idea here is we will translate our content uh, into machine, uh, using machine, into machine translation, and improve portions of the content. Um, for example, in in Brazilian Portuguese with Translation Wiki, what we did was we translated our content uh, using machine translation technology and then uh, improved a certain portions of the uh, content with the university students in uh, Brazil. And then we have in the site where the customers can go and uh, improve the quality of the translation. And uh, we have a big momentum on this from the Brazilian Portuguese uh, site and uh, um, the customers, we see more and more customer involvement from those sites for Translation Wiki. So the, the significant difference is with the community content, we don't allow our customers to touch the MSG in content. With Translation Wiki, we do allow them to improve the suggestions. And we have moderators, internal moderators, external MVPs participating as moderators who help us improving the quality of the content. So it's more like proofreading than translating at that point. Yeah. We do a we we did a similar thing here with the translation services we used to Pwa Productions, but uh it was it was all third party. Anyway, um let's talk about Sandcastle. Now is Sandcastle a uh a a code name or is this a product name? And what is it? Sandcastle is basically the tools that we use to generate our own internal docs, the things you see on MSDN. Um, both the freeform documentation that, you know, say things like here's all about Visual Studio and the the reference documentation, which is um, highly structured and a lot of that generation is automated. We put a lot of effort into, like I was talking about before, generating the logic around that. So we've gone through several generations of tools for that. For instance, when we, uh, when we shipped Whidbey, we had a system that uh, sort of. This is a big. This is a lot of pages of documentation generated. So when we generated Widby, it was taking us about 12 hours of churning through all our sources to actually generate the HTML for all of those topics. Um, and by the time we got to the number of APIs that we were shipping with Orcus, it was up to 48 hours, which is all a, a little bit long for the build cycle. Wow, man. So yeah. So we needed some serious re-engineering, and that's what we did. Um, we actually got it down with with the new system that we developed to be able to take that documentation that took 48 hours to generate and generate and do it in about five hours. Hey, Richard, it sounds like a grid computing job, doesn't it? <laughs> it's yeah, funny. We've just been having conversations about grid computing, and I was just thinking, you need more horsepower for this. Uh, yeah, actually, to tell you the truth, that's a complete side note, but we can come back to that later. We're actually in discussion with some people here at Microsoft to do parallelization about how to potentially parallelize this code so that it could be, you know, run on a grid to make things run faster. But but setting that aside, basically, we were really excited about this new system. And, and Anand, I have to give Anand the credit here, um, Anand, my boss, said, you know what, this is a great system, and I bet I bet there are customers out there who need this too, who who generate their own doc, write their own code libraries and gen- need to generate their own internal documentation or documentation for their customers, and who would probably appreciate something that could generate something that you know looks like Microsoft documentation out of the box. And so he put together this project that we actually package up our internal tools and ship them in a way that could apply to external people's um, assemblies. And that's what Sandcastle is. It's Microsoft's documentation generating tools packaged up for external users. So does it use the uh, XML comments feature of it does. Uh, the languages? You uh, do a little run through. Um, I mean, the tools themselves at the end are all console apps that do little pieces of the work. That That is done that way because, you know, that's the way we need it internally. We need to be able to customize um how one project is built relative to another or change, you know, little aspects. So the the tool chain actually exposes all sorts of different options at different places. But fundamentally, what someone externally would want to do is just um, extract the triple slash comments from their code. There's a, a in our in the .NET compilers, there's just a command line switch, the sla- the doc switch 
that does that, that generates those to an external file, which is basically an IntelliSense file. And then Sandcastle consumes that and produces a collection of HTML files that look like what our documentation looks like on MSDN, that has both the reflection information from the managed code and the triple slash comments that came out of that extracted file. Okay. And uh, all of that is munged together and reflected upon and outspits what? Um, HTML or XML that then goes into a help system? What What's the output of these console apps? So the main output is a collection of HTML pages because all of our vehicles for delivering help fundamentally are showing HTML. And you can then package it up, and we provide some tools for packaging it up in different ways after that. You can expose it directly as a web page. Um, you can uh, create an HXS file, which is how help is usually passed around in, in Visual Studio, um, and that allows you to hook into the index features and the F1 help features and all of that stuff that Visual Studio offers for integrating the development experience with the documentation. Uh, or you could just package it up as a chum, which is, you know, a simple a simple standalone file that you can ship to any Windows box and open and view on any Windows box. A .chm. I always think of chm files as the original books online files. That's what you normally saw them as. Right, exactly. So we, we actually now have this tool designed that all the way down to classic help files if you want. Although typically, I guess you're looking at more of the, the HTML help workshop model. That's right. That's what most of our users have generally been interested in doing is being able to not only generate this, these pages, but actually integrate them into uh, Visual Studio so that when someone consumes their library and programmers want to use it, that experience for the programmers is just like they were programming with the .NET framework on Visual Studio. Any special meaning to Sandcastle? Uh, yeah, I, I can talk about it. Um, when David was mentioning the previous version of the tools, uh, when we shipped uh, Visual Studio 2005 with the internally we called uh, everything around uh, these tools as Coronado, uh, which is a bridge in San Diego. Right. Um, and uh, one of the pieces is building documentation, which we attributed to Sandcastle in the beach. And uh, that's how uh, this name came about. And uh, it's funny because... Uh, uh, Mary Jo Foley, she writes in ZDNet, and she came up with an article recently about the uh, funny names in Microsoft Code, and Sandcastle feature is one of them. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Huh. It's definitely not a marketed testing and marketed-driven naming thing. It's a you know bunch of PMs and programmers sitting around in an office trying to think up a name. Well, it's a code name, right? It is a code name, but you know now it's sort of been exposed and known by that. So if if ever the marketers get a hold of this project, they're going to have a, a quandary well, look. about whether to continue with that that code name that is what, and, you know, extend the brand or actually try to come up with a more marketing savvy name. Look, if they can do Data Dude, you know? Yeah, Data Dude's good. I like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe we should call it. I mean, we have been looking for a name for... Uh... <laughs> Help Dude. There you go. Microsoft needs a line of dude products. Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, that can be the the word like you know X was in the '90s. We can have the dude product line in the in the aughts. Right. New York never sleeps, so why should you? Introducing Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September seventh through 9th in New York City. Infusion Development, world class Wall Street technology consultants, and published SharePoint book authors wants to fly you to New York City free for the ultimate training weekend. They'll even put you up at a first-class hotel, though you probably won't see much of it. For two days and nights, you'll live SharePoint and Silverlight with training, collaboration, and even competition. You'll participate in lab-offs, which will test your speed and skills, ultimately deciding who moves on to the big mystery game show. The winner will receive Insomniac, the developer's computer that never sleeps. And trust me, it's awesome. You'll also be busy trading ideas with Microsoft MVPs and rubbing shoulders with Richard and me. Hey, if knowledge is power, we just offered you the mothership. Think you got what it takes? Apply now 
at infusion.com slash sleepless in NY. The deadline is Tuesday, August 14th to apply for Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September 7th through 9th in New York City. Well, um, it seems to be a simple thing. Are there any gotchas? Is there any depth to it that we're, we're, are we just skimming the surface? Is it really, really powerful and we're naive? What, tell us more about Sandcastle. Well, there are a lot of levels to it because it was something that was supposed to, that actually supports, you know, the really complex infrastructure that we have here that actually pulls data from a lot more spaces than just triple slash comments and, and reflection. So it's actually, a completely modular system. The, uh, the the little app that you actually run to generate the HTML is really just a shell that loads plugins, and those plugins work in order. They they load an XML. So the, you know the first one loads an XML file, and the second one loads some more data from a different XML file, and then you can have as many of those as you want chained. And then other ones do stuff like run a transform or pull in some information from a database. And basically, if there's any operation that you want to happen in generating a a documentation file, you can either reuse one of the components that we use to do that, if it's it's basically just a config change to what we're we're doing, or you could write your own component to do to do that thing. It's a it's an open architecture. So you know what we did was design this little system to load plugins and, and run and run them the sequence of them on every topic that it's supposed to generate. And then our devs just went to town writing the plugins that they needed to do the operations that that we do. And those plugins are written in a way that's attempting to be very abstract. So you know we have like a load data from an external XML file plugin and what file it uses and what piece of data it loads and where it puts it in the docs are all just set up in the config. So if you wanted to load data from some other file, say you had some, you generated some XML file that listed, I don't know, the the uh, the customers who were going to use each, um, or well, I'll give you another example. They had performance data. Someone had generated performance data for each of your APIs, and you wanted to actually integrate that into your documentation. And you had an XML file that listed it. You could just add in a, a component to the stack that reused our load data from component and just gave it a different file to load data from and then make a little tweak in the transforms that ultimately turns that into HTML to take the data you loaded in and put it someplace in the doc. Um, and then you could, you know, re- turn the crank and regenerate your documentation and you would have included the, uh, the, your external data in whatever format you wanted to show up in on HTML without having to do any code changes just with a little bit of knowledge about XSL transforms and knowledge of how your file was structured. So that's the kind of architecture that we wanted to implement that was highly extensible and highly configurable. And so you can use it to do all the things that we do or add more stuff to that. You know, I'm a huge fan of plug-in architectures, and this is a perfect example, Richard, of the, the perfect application of one. You know, where there's a lot of variables, there's a lot of things that you need to, systems that you can introduce into the main system, there's flow that needs to be controlled, there's, you know, it just really screams plug-in architecture. My my immediate reaction is, where can I find these plugins? Because they must be wicked. So we we ship an assembly with Sandcastle that has the plugins that we use on it. Yeah. Um, Several people externally have created their own plugins to do ex- to do their own thing. So, for instance, um, one person has created a plugin. We we have a component that we use internally that pulls those code snippets we were talking about earlier out of the database that we store them in here. So that isn't something that we ship in our normal Sandcastle config because most people don't have you know our databases sitting out there that, to store their their snippets in. Most people just write their snippets in triple slash comments. And so we would include those certainly. But since we internally have a different mechanism for snippet storage with lots of quality control around it, we needed a component that could pull from that. And we wrote one. Um, and our component that does that colorizes the snippets, you know, so like keywords show up in a different color than strings and stuff like that. So it looks like code looks in Visual Studio. But our component 
that just did triple slash comments, that just pulled in triple slash comments and wrote them, didn't colorize any snippets that it found. So someone out there um, got a hold of Sandcastle and wrote an extra plugin that would take the uh, the snippets that were loaded in from triple slash comments and colorize them. Oh, nice. So uh, if you look around on the Sandcastle site and the Sandcastle blogs, there are a few links where people are pointing out these extra things that they've built. And you can go download them and integrate them into your own Sandcastle chain. Now, um, one of the you're obviously creating a skeleton here that has the the methods and the properties, but not the documentation itself. You're uh, do, is the documentation itself pulled in from XML files, from doc files, from or or is that added after the fact or both? Yeah. So if you run Sandcastle just without any triple slash comments input, you get exactly what you what you said. You get a skeleton that sort of looks like our docs do, except there are no words that humans write that say what anything does. Um, but if you run a, a .NET compiler like CSC, the C-sharp compiler, or VBC, the VB compiler, to ge- when you generate your code, you can add an option, which looks like slash doc, and you say slash doc colon file name, just to the compiler. This isn't something we do. It's something that the compiler teams have integrated in. And that takes all the triple slash comments that the compiler finds in your code and it outputs them as a file, an XML file. And if you hand that file to Sandcastle, which basically means in the Sandcastle config, you you uh, find the component that's dedicated to loading to that and you change its config to point to that file, we basically just encourage people to use a standard name so that they can rerun the same config on every project. That's what we do here. Anyway, if you have this if you have this XML file that the compiler generated that had extracted triple slash comments, then those get blown in to the documentation and they appear where the words are supposed to appear. You know, in the member tables, there are summaries that the there are remark par, remarks paragraphs where the remarks paragraphs are supposed to be. All that stuff just gets pulled in from the triple slash comments if you give Sandcastle the triple slash comment file. You can't do any formatting in those triple slash comments though. Like you can't you know have a block of sample code or or anything like that. So there are some there's some formatting that the triple slash comment um, markup allows, but you're absolutely right; it's quite minimal. So what we have done is, in addition to supporting that formatting, which allows you to do things like simple things like paragraphs and links and stuff like that, we pass through and process any HTML markup that people write in their triple slash comments. So if you, you know, if you want to. Have your oh. if you actually have dedicated resources who are willing to put time into making triple slash comments really nice, then you can not only put i tags and bold tags and things like that, but you could even put spans with classes and then modify your CSS so that those rendered in some fancy way. So okay. anything that you can do in HTML markup, you can pass right through and get it to show up in your dog. Man, that's some serious formatting geekery there. That's what that is. But is that what people typically do, or do they, once they see the final HTML output, go in and tweak that? I hope they wouldn't do the latter. I mean, there, there might be people who've done that, but certainly it's a, it's a lot you know, better process to, uh, to mo- have that in your, in your source code rather than trying to re-modify it after every build. Yeah, this is not a re-entrant process. You, you edit at the triple slash, you make a change to the triple slash, and you're purely generating with it. That's right. So it's, it's really a help compiler, if you like. You can think of it as analogous that a, a compiler takes your code and generates bits, and the Sandcastle is a help compiler that takes your triple slash comments and, and DLLs um, and generates documentation. Well, I, I may be a link to another comment to to another, you know, see also that kind of stuff. I mean, how does how do you do that with with XML comments? Um, there actually is. I'm you know I'm I am not going to be able to remember off the top of my head what the tag is, but, but there possible. is a tag um, that's defined for triple slash comments. If you go to the Microsoft site that says what the suggested. Um, XML markup that they recommend for triple slash comments. There is a see also tag which generates a see also section, and if you put links, which I that tag I happen to remember, it's it's um, uh, code reference, I believe. Code samples too. You can get those in the comments. Yep, you can. You can. That's the code tag, and then that generates a code sample. You know, with its little offset background, and just like our code samples look. 
So you end up with these C sharp VB files that have huge comments. Does that make it hard to develop with them, or do you just collapse the comments? So yeah. If I get external people stuff, I just collapse the comments. But there is a process. If you have a big, a big um, company with a big effort that actually separates the jobs of the documenters from the coders, so like that's what we do at Microsoft. We have people that we've hired as authors. Very, very smart idea. There, other companies have done that as well. By the way, (laughs) one of the things, just as a quick aside, one of the things we found out when we released that, we thought that you know there was no one out there with the kind of needs that Microsoft had, that, that everyone was just, you know, writing a few extra comments in their, in their coding and in their triple slash comment code. And they would be happy to have some, something that generated something that looked like Microsoft, but they wouldn't have any big infrastructure on that. But we found out that was totally wrong. Yeah. That was my thought. Wrong. <laughs> so, you know, we found out that there are companies like Allianz and Ford and, and um, Morgan, Stanley. Morgan Stanley who have, whole departments of hundreds of devs and, you know, authors to comment that code. And so they have just as big and complex a process as we do. Sure. And teams of developers that just build tools for other teams of developers to build products used entirely internally. And this is ideal for that scenario that these internal tool developers that, you know, the build the standard customer classes for the whole organization. This is exactly what they need. They need some way to get that information across, have it embedded in studio so that you have the Ford development environment has all of these things embedded in its version of studio. Yep. That's right. So Anand has been, has been working in the background here, pulling up the website on MSDN that lists the recommended tags for triple flash comments. And there is one called see also just written as one word and a tag name. And if you put that in a triple flash comment and you um, include C tags, S E E, those are the link tags for triple flash comments Ah. underneath it. Then those will generate a see also section in the doc. And you know, there are other things that the ones that everyone knows about. There's the summary tag and the parameter tags and the return tags, but there are also tags for, generating remarks sections and permission sections and pretty much all the sections that we generate for our own documentation, you can recreate using the, the uh, recommended um, markup for triple slash comments and Sandcastle. And we'll go ahead and shrinksterize that link for you and let you know in, a little bit later in the show. So it sounds like you guys have really taken the XML comment space to a new level. I mean, I really didn't think that I would want to you know, take sample code and put it in an XML comment and with a block and, and, you know, somehow that would generate documentation. It, you know, I was thinking you'd have linked doc files and text files and all sorts of things. But if you think about it, I mean, that, that kind of methodology is horribly complex and quite inefficient. Well, there are two sides to that argument. And I should say that internally, for not for reasons of process. For reasons of process, it would make sense. For, for reasons of having everything in one place, it would make sense to document for if our own internal people documented in triple slash comments right in the code. But what actually happens? We tried to do that with the very 1.0 release of the framework. So you know, at the very beginning of .NET, there was this idea of triple slash comments, and everyone was gung ho about it. And so they they included it in the product. And then we decided we'd build our own documentation off of it. And what we found out is that devs hated having authors in their source files because the authors would, you know, like make some typo or forget to have a line on a comment and that would break the build. Right. Right. So um, it is entirely possible and to still and still using Sandcastle, it's entirely possible to have external files where you have this same markup. Um, but you just keep it in a different file if you want to have your source for your docs different for your source from the the um, the actual code, and that is what we do internally. Um, so if you do that, you can maintain those in completely separate files, and um, basically then you just don't have that step that, where you run the compiler with the slash doc flag to extract the triple slash comments as an XML file. Instead, you can just maintain that ex- external XML file directly. So how do you keep them in sync? That is a, exactly the issue that arises when you do that. And it, just within the world of Sandcastle, 
the sandcastle will emit a warning if when it you know it finds an API but then doesn't find documentation for it, then you'll be able to see that on the warning. So, but internally we also um, and this doesn't ship with Sandcastle again because this is part of our sort of internal database system and all that. But we have a bunch of infrastructure that runs and produces regular reports for the managers that say, here are all the APIs. And not only does it say documentation is missing for this one, but it even gets down to the point of saying like, well, this one's documented, but this particular parameter is not documented, or this one has remarks, but this other one doesn't. And you show your authors should really add remarks. So we have a lot of internal quality control around that um, for for internal stuff, but that's something that hasn't been packaged up and shipped externally yet because it's really part of all the database system that we maintain. You know, getting developers to write documentation of any kind has always been a horribly painful process, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and that applies to me too, I've got to, I've got to admit. I mean, comments are okay, but, you know, because maybe because they, they play to your ego, it's like, whoa, look at this awesome code, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you occasionally run across the comment also that says, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed that this is in here. We really shouldn't be doing it this way, but I don't have time to do it the better way. You right. see those comments, too. Little landmines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can make it easy for developers to uh, or authors if those are separate jobs at your organization, we can make it easy for you to create documentation once we've written your comments. But I'm afraid we aren't at the point yet where we where we can entirely write your comments for you. I have to work on that a little longer. So if, you know, I'm just brainstorming when I hear you say that you generate reports to say what things are missing, wouldn't it be easy to, to open up those external files and just put in markers for for the for the actual elements of the classes and whether there's documentation there you leave that alone but you just put in the markers so that you know when somebody comes in in the morning and the programmer has written a new method or modified a method there can be like you know something highlighted there that says hey these are things you need to fix right that's exactly what we do for internal stuff and if you use triple slash comments in code this is again to the sort of trade-off you make whether you keep your comments in separate files and then you have to worry about issues like this but if you don't if you don't do that and you just keep your triple slash comments in with your code then um, not only do you see right away when you open the file if there's an API that doesn't have triple slash comments, but when you run the compiler with that slash doc flag, it actually emits warnings that say, um, all right, I'm generating, I'm compiling this API and I've noticed you don't have triple slash comments for it. So you right. can also key off your compiler warnings if you, if you, uh, take the route of keeping your triple flash comments embedded in the code. Yeah, I can just see that getting really, really hard when you're dealing with lots and lots of code. And now you have to keep a list of compiler warnings somewhere so that you have some sort of to-do list to go to do your work for that day. You know, you come in and... Well, I hope that if you have lots and lots of code, your team has some process for looking at compiler warnings. Yeah, I would hope so. Otherwise... There's a lot of stuff getting through even before you worry about the documentation. I mean, those things go in standard bug reports, right? I mean, you know, when when I was when I was working in the business, you know, back way back in the nineties. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Oh my god! I can't believe I said that. You know, the uh, we would have you know documentation was just considered one of those you know that that's a work item that's. Uh, uh, and if it's not there, it's a bug. And I was thinking that having it embedded in a triple slash point of view means the uh, the check-in process, all of your source control could uh, includes your documentation. But if someone goes in and just starts editing the comments, you're going to be cr- creating all of these builds that are just comment change builds. Yep. And that's exactly the reason that in the end, what we decided to do internally was to keep them separate and then to deal with the sync problem to create a bunch of infrastructure around yeah. tracking that and making sure that it's surfaced in reports that you can actually look at on internal websites that documentation managers and authors look at pretty much every day to determine what it, where, where they need to go in and create documentation. Hey, do you find that the horizontal scroll bar is the most annoying thing when you're trying to read that impossibly long line of code? Well, maybe a 19-inch LCD monitor would help. Telerik challenges you to explore their new reporting product and have a chance to give your workstation a facelift. 
A 19-inch NEC monitor could be yours if you answer a few easy multiple-choice questions about Telerik reporting. Just spend a few minutes and see how easily you can generate Windows, Web, and PDF reports. Play with the drag-and-drop data binding. Experiment with Telerik's acclaimed CSS-like customization of reporting items. The reporting tool is fast and compact and very easy to deploy with a mere X-copy. Even if you don't get top marks in the quiz, you can still be a winner. The modest score of seven correct answers out of 11 questions secures you a complimentary Telerik reporting developer license that you can use in your personal and professional projects. So go to Telerik.com and give it a try. It's fun. It's interesting. And it can get you a free license or a new monitor. You know what's missing from this whole process here are the entries that aren't directly bound to a method or a property that the what's new, the sort of overview entries in a help system that help ground people. Uh, how am I going to incorporate those using Sandcastle? Ah, good. That is a very good question. Well, you can do it now, which I will admit straight up is a bit of a hack. And then there's a way that we we actually hope to ship in the future. So the way you do it now is... You just write, you create an HTML page in whatever way you want. Okay. You can write, open up Word. You can write HTML directly. If you do that kind of thing, you can open up Word and have it save as HTML, whatever. Just generate the HTML file that you want to include as, say, your what's new that's going to appear at the very top. And then, um, one of the, one of the things that Sandcastle creates besides, um, the actual HTML pages when you run it, um, are the TOC files that all these help packages are going to include. So you, when you run the Chum compiler or the HXS compiler or anything like that, it expects to not just get a directory full of HTML files, but a file that represents its table of contents. So what you can do now is take that HTML page that you generated and dump it in to the file, to the directory of files that Sandcastle made. And then you can open up that, um, TOC file that Sandcastle made and add um, your a pointer, a node that points to that file you've added. And then when you run your Chum compiler or HXS compiler, that will get put in. And you can write batch files to automate this if you want, so you don't need to do it every time. So that's life as it is now. What we would like to do in the future is actually make, a, just like we've made available via Sandcastle, our way of generating reference docs to people, that we make available our way of generating conceptual docs to people so that they can take basically the same XML language that they use to document reference stuff and write a conceptual page um, using those tags and have Sandcastle generate those files as well, those HTML files, and then know right away um, where they go in the TOC and stuff like that. So that's, that's definitely a work item for the future. And, you know, we've seen that, and I agree 100% with that need, but we're not quite at that point yet in what we're, what we're shipping publicly. Let me ask you this, guys, and I'll ask each of you individually. What is your favorite feature of Sandcastle? Anand? The, the, the favorite feature is the, the speed in which or the performance in which we are able to. So this is a, this is a great satisfaction for me, uh, especially the .NET framework when we're shipping internally. We went from 40 hours, as David mentioned, to um, less than five hours. So it's mainly for internal. Um, my favorite thing externally is uh, we have a whole bunch of customers who have jumped in and uh, opened up a, a graphical user interface and uh, um, written graphical user interface and also plugins for Visual Studio. We have about three projects in CodePlex. That's uh, CodePlex.com. That's... Uh, available uh, for Sandcastle. Um, the other great thing is also, which I like, is you know not only we are shipping uh, content to Visual Studio offline, also to MSD and online, we also ship our ASP.NET AJAX content uh, to ASP.NET AJAX. Sorry, AJAX.ASP.NET slash docs. If you look at the help content in the AJAX sites, that comes from Sandcastle and also... Silverlight documentation, which is in the silverlight.net site, comes yeah. from documentation. I just forwarded you the websites uh, um, for them. Okay. David? 
So I'm going to overlap just a little bit with Anand. So my favorite part of all of this is basically what you guys were touching on earlier, the, the fact that it's an extensible platform, that you can go in and change some aspect of it as you want to. And that mostly, for most changes that you want to think of, that's as easy as it could possibly be. You know, if, if, if it's something that could just be done as a transform change or pulling an additional piece of, of file, additional piece of information from some external file, then that's as, as simple as it can be. And if, if it's something that really does require code logic to make it happen, then all you have to write is the, the, is the code that does your particular logic. And you don't really have to figure out how to integrate it with the rest of that stuff because the plugin architecture just provides a natural place for it to sit. So that has really allowed that, that flexibility has really allowed this kind of community to develop. And so I'm really, really happy with the community that has developed around that, that we've given people a platform that they can build on and, and they've gone and done it. And there's some great people out there doing great work on top of this, doing things that I hadn't thought of when I first started. And that's really gratifying for me to see, you know, other people taking, taking my work and running with it and making, making their lives better. All right. And, and the other side of that question is what's the number one requested feature? Um, <laughs> um, we have lots. Uh, the number one is, uh, the ease of use is what, uh, people have been uh, asking, you know. We have made it, uh, very, very pluggable architecture and also at the same time, uh, we focus a lot on the performance improvements, but, uh, it's not easy for someone to use. So if, uh, if you download a CTP of a Sandcastle version, uh, it's not a single click that you can take it and use it. And this is, the number one uh, feature I've been, and this is something we are looking at. So hopefully we can do something about it. So, and that's what all these CodePlex projects are trying to solve too, right? right exactly. Right. I wanted to say that although we haven't done a good job with that, some of the people out in the community have actually done an excellent job creating wrappers around Sandcastle that let it work in more of a push one or two button fashion. Yeah, I got to I got to imagine this would incorporate into Orcus brilliantly. I can't make any promises about future products, but I can say that, you know, you're not the first person to make that suggestion, and we're very interested in it. Are there any other specific features that uh, that people request all the time? Oh, yeah, lots. Um, people request additional tags that do additional things, like there's a request out there for a, for a triple slash comment that would suppress a an API from appearing. That's something that comes to mind right away. Oh, yeah, unmanaged code. So reflecting, doing other sorts of documentation. You can imagine anything that is highly structured, you should be able to generate, you, you should be able to use this framework, the same sort of framework with just a different transform and different source files plugged in to, to auto-generate that documentation. So we're looking at unmanaged code, um, fiddle files. We're looking at web services so that you could just point it to a web service and say, document all of the APIs that this web service exposes, uh. and it would create those pages. We're looking at schema files, XSD files, so that you could just point it at an XSD file and say, you know, show me all the elements that are defined with this and what elements are allowed to be children of what others and what attributes are allowed and stuff like that. Let me bring you back to that tag for a minute. Can that be implemented with a plugin? The which Oh, Yes, it can. So, but it's not that easy for somebody to, I, I mean, I, to write a plugin for this to do something like that, I guess, is no trivial thing, is it? No, actually, that is that would be fairly straightforward to do. So, huh. um, I'll tell you what I would do if I were writing this plugin. So, we provide a bunch of plugins that, in addition to doing actual stuff to the documentation, like loading something or colorizing something or running a transform. We provide a bunch of flow control plugins that basically say something. So you could say, for instance, execute this branch of plugins if you find this XML element and execute this other branch of plugins if you don't. Wow. And so I would just um, basically wrap our save plugin in an if-then plugin that tested for that element and didn't save the file if, the, if it found the exclude element. So that's, you know, that's the architecture that comes to mind just now thinking on the phone about this problem. I have to say that the reason we haven't done it is that we are, is that it's not an internal scenario for us. Actually, internally, we are legally bound to document every conceivably publicly accessible API. There was a 
you know, a big lawsuit about that a few years ago. Okay. So, so our internal scenario is, uh, is to make sure we aren't doing that. We aren't excluding anything and to, in fact, have a lot of quality control around the fact that we want to make sure that every publicly accessible thing gets documentation generated for it. And so as we've been concentrating on trying to get everything we need for Orcus in place, we've been worrying about that and not about this this particular request from external users. So ha- have the workflow guys approached you and said, how come you're not using Workflow Foundation? Um, they have, actually. <laughs> and, uh, the, and we've looked into using Workflow Foundation. Um, and basically, we found a performance problem trying to do that. So okay. the, the, um, when you think about how quickly these have to execute, we, you, this stack of plugins has to, has to be called and execute, um, for every single topic that you generate. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, since we have a million topics or so to generate that we want to do in a few hours, you have to be able to, to get these things to execute their logic in, you know, I, I, I haven't done the division problem in my head. Basically, in really you know, fast. fractions of a millisecond. And the the workflow test, the testing that we did at the very beginning using Workflow Foundation just found out that the sort of handoff between those components is a little bit long for our purposes. Well, and that's not also the nature of workflow. This tend, workflow is generally a fairly human interactive or complex transaction interactive element. You know, you're, you're running a very unusual scenario in that you're time sensitive over millions of requests through a workflow engine. I, I, you just don't see that every day. Exactly. So workflow would make a lot of sense. And in fact, we do use it for our, um, for our big external processes, like deciding to kick off an entire documentation build. Right. And pulling in the inputs from that, the sort of thing where the workflow executes once a night or, you know, once an hour. Um, but trying to have it execute hundreds of times a second it got a little slow. Yeah, it's just not the way it's built to function. That's uh that's an interesting an interesting scenario and I had not considered the idea. I mean Carl grabbed on it right away that you'd use workflow for that. And I could see where it would definitely be a challenge. It's now you're talking about transactional velocity and and you just don't think about workflow in those terms. Yeah, well the light bulb went off where when he said we have these flow components and the if then component uh that that that's where the light went off about workflow. But so, uh, I, I congratulate you on the light going off. It's an excellent idea. And I wish it had worked out for us. Oh, well, sometimes you get some and sometimes you don't. <laughs> so is there anything that we haven't touched on in this conversation? Anything we missed? Anand, can you think of anything? Uh, I mean, David mentioned initially about some of the work we are doing with the uh, parallel computing team. Oh, right. Uh, right. Developer division has a... Uh, uh, many core division. It's very, very new. I don't know how much you've heard about this. It's uh, um, using thousands of CPUs and uh, how Visual Studio will perform. This is in the very early stages, and uh, uh, we just met with them to talk about you know how can we parallelize this uh, code uh, to build future versions of framework. So it's it's very, very early in the talks. So it's very funny that 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 came up because. We just did an interview with Dan Cerulli from Digipede Networks, who has a .NET grid implementation for grid computing using .NET components in Visual Studio. And I thought, well, the two of you ought to talk. But uh, Yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. Certainly, when you think about this problem in the abstract, it seems something that should be eminently parallelizable. You're trying to do the same workflow applied to you know a million documents in a row. Right. So, um, and, and at, at some very simple level, we are parallelizing in this, in, in the very trivial sense. And this is a very trivial sense. Yeah. Um, of, of having a bunch of, of having a, a, a farm of servers that do our builds and we, we farm out different, um, different subsets of the docs to different servers. But, um, there's no shared memory involved. The, the, whenever, whenever there's some bit of information that needs to be accessible for all the builds. So for instance, in order to make links work, we have to have some store of information of everywhere a link could go to, right? Yeah, so there needs to be a central repository. Loads that information separately for its run. Um, so to really, really make this parallelized, what you basically want is all that shared stuff stored in shared memory across the grid. And then individual um, topic builds happening in some dynamically farmed out way across your grid 
and accessing that shared information store when they need it. And that, that's the real bit of uh, neat engineering that would need to come to truly parallelize this process in the right way. Very cool. Thinking about how you could do continuous integration on it too. As things were being changed, just compiling the bits that were being modified. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's actually something that we have the basic infrastructure in place to do right now in the sense that we can tell you from one build to the next of, of Orcus um, what APIs have changed. Um, and we have the infrastructure to just generate those topics. What we don't yet have in place is the infrastructure to pass those individual topics off to MSDN. Right now, MSDN asks us for an HXS that, you know, is the complete set of, of at least one area of the documentation. So we can pass them a set of, of say, all of the APIs in some namespace. So we basically, this is no, no longer a software question. It's a question of bureaucracy, of getting integrated with them so that we have a a way to hand off a single topic to them. And then we'll be able to do just what you suggested, that that when some something changes, we just regenerate that topic or the topics that it affects and hand off that particular piece and publish that particular piece on MSDN. So we should also mention the Sandcastle site at shrinkster.com slash R5V, as in vitamin, and the Sandcastle blog at R5S, as in Sierra, What's the uh, Sandcastle blog like these days? Yeah, we currently we have uh, been shipping our CTPs on a monthly basis. And uh, uh, it's, it's interesting that we ship a tool for documentation, yet there is no documentation. This, is, uh, ah. this has been a number one uh, <laughs> customer <laughs> complaint. And all the documentation you can see is in the blog. So um, I just want to say that you know, we are... Uh, working on uh, documenting these and hopefully we'll ship some help uh, with one of these CTPs very soon uh, with a comprehensive help. Uh, but currently everything is available in the uh, blogs.msgn.com slash sandcastle. And uh, um, I try to post very, very uh, frequently and also talk more about health system, what is coming in MSDN and uh, the recent... Uh, Code comments introduced in JavaScript by the Atlas team and how we can document those with Sandcastle. So some of the helpful uh, tips I've been providing over there. Oh, that's great. Another really cool thing that you can get to from the Sandcastle site, I hate to say it with Anand sitting here next to me, even cooler than Anand's blog oh. is the uh, the community comment forums where a lot of people who are who are users with, you know, all of their individual experience and, and individual um, problems come together and a lot of great information is available by by looking through the the conversations in that in those community areas. Excellent. And are we going to be able to get wikis generated from Sandcastle as well? Because yeah, I think that's the piece that's missing here. That is a great suggestion and you might be amazed to know that that's the first time I've heard it. No. So right wow. now the wiki is a is a feature of MSDN um, that they add on top of sort of any HTML topics that we ship them. But it sounds to me like a great suggestion to try to to basically shift some. I mean, I, I, now that I think about this, the very first thing that makes that hard is it's easy to write some HTML and JavaScript that you know has that has that presents that infrastructure. But you need a database back end to actually store the comments right. and ASP.NET pages to call them up and stuff like that. When you regenerate your help, you got to make sure that those old wiki comments go along with the new entries. Right, so exactly. it is a dual so trip. keeping that bindery together is going to be a challenge. Right. And I think most people would want that. I mean, the HTML that we generate is static HTML with, with JavaScript used to generate dynamic effects, but it doesn't have any ASP.NET components in it or access a database as it's being displayed. I should say, by the way, that one of the things that external people have done is write changes to the transforms that do generate ASP.NET controls to do cool things that they wanted done. So that's certainly possible in the infrastructure, but the default that we ship with are that we ship just HTML plus JavaScript. And so what we would need to do is actually ship a default configuration that generated the necessary ASP.NET controls and told people, you know, here's here's a file to create your backend SQL database to store your comments. 
that, um, and then you put it up, and here's how you put it up on IIS. And when you've done all that, then you could have your own um, wiki uh, with Sandcastle generated pages. That's a great idea. Lots of possibilities there. I, I just see this. It's nice to see that the problem of help is being addressed. You're sort of pulling it together, automating some generation so that what we're already doing gets used well, but getting into these new mechanisms, new styles, while still supporting the old styles so that I I have some hope of getting help out to my users in a way they're actually going to use and that's meaningful and that can ke- be kept updated without having a doc team to do it. Thanks, and thanks for having us on. Thank you. Yeah, hats off to you guys. Great job. Absolutely. Our guests have been Anand Raman and David Wright, both from Microsoft in the Microsoft Developer Division Content and International team. Guys, thank you very much again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC, and yes, I'm a 